What that interviewer was really saying is, I don't want to literally apply the moral dictates of Scripture to my life. If I want to literally get drunk and be gay or fornicate or commit adultery, I want to do that so I don't literally interpret the Bible. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into chapter six of our study of the Revelation. We've seen that this chapter opens with the breaking of the first seal of the seven seal scroll introduced in the previous chapter. And we again see reference to one of the four living creatures also mentioned in chapter five. These four creatures we've noted are a special class of angel. And this one in a thunderous voice proclaims, come. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes four different interpretations that are given to this prophetic part of Scripture. Let me give you four approaches to the Revelation. You want to understand these. The first is called the idealist view, or what is sometimes called the spiritual view. The idealist view says that the book of Revelation is just a book of good and evil, that there's no time frame. It's not referring to events in the past. It's not referring to events in the future. It's just giving us spiritual principles for living. And so they approach the Bible allegorically. One of the uh, late church fathers, and he was unique in his own right, his name was Origen. And he came up with the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And unfortunately, Augustine adopted his view. When you allegorize a text of Scripture, you don't take it for its plain truth. You say, well, it says this, but this is what it really means. And of course, a lot of liberals in our day who at least say maybe, some of them, let's just outright deny the authority of the Bible, but some who say it's inspired, they very typically interpret the Bible allegorically. Why? Because they can make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And so the battles that we will see in the Revelation are not real literal battles. Those are spiritual battles that the believer faces. And um, it, the, the, the various kingdoms are uh, satanically inspired political kingdoms, but not future kingdoms out there in the future. The problem with that right off is the book opens on the third verse by telling us that the Revelation is a prophecy. And the book ends in 22:18, a few verses before the close, and it tells us that this book is a prophecy. Prophecy is about the future. This is not some allegory. And I hope to demonstrate before we're done that the method of interpretation that this group uses, as the other two groups, denies the method that Jesus uses. How do we know which group is right? How do you know how to interpret the Bible? You know, some people say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, sometimes it just is someone's interpretation, and it's the wrong interpretation. So how do you know to correctly interpret the Bible, especially in times futuristic literature? Well, you look for models, and God gave us models. The way Jesus interpreted prophecy, the way the apostles interacted with prophecy, the way we even saw the way Daniel acted, uh, entertained prophecy in the Old Testament. Remember, he's there in Babylon, and he's reading Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, that describes a 70-year period. When Jeremiah wrote it, it hadn't even happened yet. He's warning the southern two tribes that God is going to bring uh, the Babylonians, and he's going to carry them away and, into judgment. And he says that that carrying away period will be for 70 years. So Daniel's reading 
the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, oh, we're in the 67th year. It's almost over. How did he believe that prophecy? Literally. And so if the prophets of old literally, plainly interpreted prophecy, if Jesus did it that way, if the apostles did it that way, that's how I'm going to take it. All right? Second, there's a second view called the preterist view. The word praetor is a Latin word that means past. And so the preterist view interprets the book of Revelation as it has already happened, that it's basically a history book, that all of the events described therein, like in the Olivet Discourse, are recording history that took place by the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, there are two types of preterists. There's a very small minority of them that are called full preterists, who believe that all of the prophecies have already taken place and that we're actually in heaven. Well, look, if I'm in heaven, God must have given me the ghetto section of it. I mean, um, but most of them are what we call partial preterists. And they say everything up until the second coming. No Orthodox Christian denies the second coming of Christ. That's a test of orthodoxy. They say all of the events with the exception of the literal, physical, actual second coming of Jesus have taken place. Of course, preterism, to be true, you have to date the book of Revelation before 70 AD, and they usually dated it 65. Now, the problem with that is the study that we did, the careful study, I gave seven one-hour-plus sermons on the seven churches. Some of you say, do you preach for over an hour? I do. You may have come to the wrong place today, but we are not looking for just warm bodies. We're looking for people who are serious about the things of God. And if we thin the crowd out, so be it. I am looking to make disciples and people who are serious about studying God's Word. When we studied those seven churches, we saw clearly they were not first-generational, but second-generational churches. Take the church in Ephesus. They are accused of leaving their first love, and they are accused of entertaining the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Well, listen. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, they're the healthiest church probably in all the New Testament. No, that's a second-generation church. We studied the church in Smyrna. That didn't even exist during Paul's lifetime. We studied the church at Laodicea, which three times in his letter to the Colossians, he commends as a great church. But we see in the Revelation, God rebukes that church because it's a second-generation church. So number one, the preterist view doesn't even fit the context of the book of Revelation itself. And another problem is that these events that are described in Revelation 6 through 19 are described in the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus sees them as being out there in the future. Um, again, they spiritualize a lot of that. Take Matthew 24, 27. In the Olivet Discourse, we call it a discourse, a sermon that's given on the Mount of Olives, the mountain that Jesus ascended to heaven to, the mountain he's coming back to. It's kind of ground zero. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so preterists like Hank Hanegraaff says, well, this is a picture of the Roman army advancing on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and uh, they came from the west, but it doesn't work if you think about it because they come from the west to the east. History documents that. He should know better if he just read history a little bit. But what Jesus is describing is an event that goes east to west, not west to east. Not to mention, Jesus describes it as fast, like lightning, like a flash in the sky. 
The siege of Jerusalem was not fast. It began in 67, and it was three long years that the city was under siege and then conquered in 70 AD. Not to mention when Titus comes and that temple ends up being destroyed, every stone torn apart just as Jesus prophesied. When Titus comes, he doesn't commit the abomination of desolation on that temple, in that temple. That happens way out there in the future. Daniel puts it out in the future, as does the Lord Jesus. So this is not some history book. Now, I should say parenthetically that this view comes out of Roman Catholicism. Um, it's held by people like Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, some of you know R.C. Sproul. He holds a preterist view. And so he takes this very loose interpretation of the revelation. Uh, but Jesus spoke of a time frame where he said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. If this is history, there has never, ever, ever been a time in human history where you could describe the events that are taking place on planet Earth in this way. And so this is not history, this is still future. And again, this position overlooks the opening and the closing verses that call this book a prophecy. All right, there's a third view. There's the idealist view, there's the preterist view, but there's also the historicist view. And this is what we would call not a no time or a past time, but we call a present time view. The historicist view says that uh, these events are being uh, fulfilled uh, during the course of 2,000 years in church history. The approach to interpreting Revelation uh, is really kind of interesting because uh, your interpretation is, is about as fluent as your imagination. Dr. John Walford, who was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there, probably one of the greatest experts on end times theology in the 20th century, said so articulately there are as many interpretations by the historicists as there are historicists. And so depending on what time frame you are living in human history will determine how you will approach the Scripture. And so uh, they typically approach it from a perspective, the early historicists from Western Europe. So depending on what time frame, the locusts, for instance, during the time of the Reformation, where a number of the Reformers held this view, they said those were the monks and friars of the Roman Catholic Church. They saw Muhammad as the fallen star, Elizabeth I. The, Queen Elizabeth I is the first judgment bull. Adolf Hitler, they said, he's the rider on the red horse. And again, it really opens the Scripture. And I might also add that virtually always when they take the historicist view, it's from the church in Western Europe, not the church in the rest of the world. So they ignore the church, say, in India and in Asia and, and, and what God is doing during that time frame. Who are some of the people who held the historicist view? Well, Luther and Calvin and Swingley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And central to the error, we will see, is what's called replacement theology that God is done with the people of Israel. I am so embarrassed, I've told you before, when I go into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, because the first thing you see, the first exhibit you go to, they have Augustine and all of the hateful, anti-Semitic things he said about the Jewish people. It's embarrassing. And so replacement theology says God is done with the children of Israel. And so this view is very popular because if, if, if the book of Revelation is church history unfolding, 
then you kind of make it say what you want it to say. And so for the reformers, most of them said that the Pope was the Antichrist. I have in my hands the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you go to chapter 26 or chapter 25, section 6, it says, there is no other head of the church than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good statement. In no sense can the Pope in Rome be the head of it. That's a good statement. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of damnation, who glorifies himself and opposes himself and everything related to God. Now understand, it's possible that the coming man of sin, the man of lawlessness, is the Antichrist. But when they wrote this, the Westminster Confession of Faith, they said the Pope in their day was the Antichrist. That they were living during the Great Tribulation period. It was really a distortion of Scripture, and when they died, they found out they were wrong. Now, there's a fourth approach. The futurist approach, all right? Stay with me. There's the idealists. No time at all. The preterists, it's past. The historists, it's, it's present time. The futuristic approach. It takes the events of chapters 4 through 22 as being out in the future. And they interpret the Scripture literally, much like Daniel literally interpreted the prophecy concerning the future of Jeremiah the prophet. So Revelation 13 describes a literal world empire in the future with a literal religious leader, with a literal coming antichrist, with a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus upon the earth. And it will follow by Jesus coming back to the earth where he will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. And again, I think one of the reasons God in this book gave us an outline to this book is so that we could not miss it. I mean, think about it. In chapter 1, he gives an introduction, and then there are just 12 verses in that first chapter that is describing the things that he has seen. And so he writes of that magnificent vision of the glorified Christ. In chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the things present of the seven churches that are functioning in John's day, 95 AD, when he writes the book. But then beginning in chapter 4, he writes about the things which shall take place after these things. Here's the point. 333 of the 404 verses of the Revelation concern the future. It, they haven't happened yet. And so the plain, literal, uh, normal approach to Scripture understands it that way. I mean, think about it. You have to really come up with some wacky views to say this has already happened in the past or it has happened already. When you look at the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments found in chapters 6, 8, and 16, nothing ever in the history of man has happened like that in chapters 6, 8, 9, and 16. Nothing ever. Um, not to mention, Jesus told the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 that there's coming a time that will come upon the whole world. There's never been a time, even in the great world wars, that has ever encompassed the whole world. But listen, how were the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? Literally, every prophecy. And for us to think that God is going to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming in a different way is, I think, to misinterpret the Bible. So, futurists take what we call a literal, plain interpretation of the Bible. 
They go back and they look at the original sense to the original audience in its historical context, and then they interpret it on that basis. Now, sometimes you will see people being interviewed on TV, and they'll ask a preacher like, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? And what they are typically really asking behind that question is, I don't want to take the Bible literally the host, because I don't like the literal moral dictates that it has on my life. And so, you know, there was a preacher being interviewed and asked, well, do you believe uh, in a literal interpretation? It was in the context of homosexuality. And what that interviewer was really saying is, I don't want to literally apply the moral dictates of Scripture to my life. If I want to literally get drunk and be gay or fornicate or commit adultery, I want to do that. So I don't literally interpret the Bible. Now, I don't think maybe the best word to use in our day because it is so misunderstood to say that we believe in a literal interpretation. Maybe it would be better to say we believe in a plain interpretation because the futurist who does literally interpret the Bible does not ignore figures of speech or symbols. Remember, this book was signified to us. It was given in signs. That's what he says in the opening verses. So it's important that when there is a sign, we understand the sign and then apply it accordingly. Now, the futurist view is a view that is, for the most part, taken by born-again Christians in this country, and it's almost the exclusive view by born-again Christians in other countries. And again, it's the only view, with the exception of origin, that the church fathers took. And those are the men, there's early and late church fathers, but all of the early church fathers said that Revelation 4 through the end of the book concerned the future. Why is that important? Because they lived closest to the apostles. They sat under their teaching. And so as a general rule of thumb, if it's new, it is not true. So the book of Revelation has to be understood. Symbols need to be recognized. And I told you one of the reasons it's a hard book to understand is because it's filled with Old Testament references. 300 of the 404 verses, some would say 600, 700, 800, and they're taking the same Old Testament passage that might be found in three or four different places, so they're double counting. But 300 of the 404 verses, that's 75% of the book, is from the Old Testament. And the challenge is, he never says Moses said, or David said, or, or Isaiah the prophet said. It's just woven like a beautiful mosaic. And it's great that God did this, because you have all these Old Testament prophecies in the Old Testament, and in some prophets, you're not sure, well, does this happen before this, or does this happen after this? But John takes all of these Old Testament references, and he gives you the chronological order by um, writing the book in the way the Holy Spirit allowed him to write it. So, it's important that you understand the Old Testament. 24 different Old Testament books are quoted in the Revelation. Um, so, key is understanding the symbols, and key to understanding most of the symbols, if it's not interpreted directly in the text, is to go back to the Old Testament. So, when someone says to me, well, Pastor Carl, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? My answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense if it's a symbol, I recognize it's a symbol. Then I try to interpret the symbol, letting Scripture interpret the s Scripture. And then when I understand what the symbol means, I literally believe it. So when the Bible says that Satan is a great red dragon, it's describing his cruel and hateful and vicious nature. Uh, somebody might say, well, that, that's only a symbol. So he's not literally a cruel red dragon, so there must be no devil. No, 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 no. You understand what the symbol means, and then you literally believe it. 
So key to understanding Revelation is number one key is to understand the Old Testament, but also to understand that the principles that God, the promises that God made to Israel, and we'll spend some time on this, are unconditional. God is not done with the Jewish people. Now, unfortunately, at least in the American church, the popular view, because there's a lot of Reformed guys like Alistair Begg and John Piper and on and on the list would go, R.C. Sproul, who think that God is done with Israel. He is not done with Israel. God is going to fulfill human history through Israel. Just as He brought the first coming of Messiah through Israel, He's going to bring the second coming of Christ through Israel. Now look at verse 2 of Revelation 6. That was a rabbit trail, I know. <laughs> I looked, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So when we read this verse and we ask, well, who is this rider, and what is the seal judgment that he brings? Well, it all depends on how you interpret Revelation. If you take the allegorical approach, you can make it to be whatever you want it to be. Uh, the Mormons are known for allegorizing the Bible. And so they say these seven seals represent 7,000-year time frames in human history to make some of their cultist false doctrines work. If you're a preterist uh, and say it was all history and all fulfilled before 70 AD, they take the first horsemen to be the Parthian warriors because the Parthians were known for riding on white horses. And they say, well, this happened when the leader of the Parthians came on his white horse and he tried to make an attempt against Rome in 62 AD. Well, the historicists, he says, whatever basically he wants it to mean in his time frame in human history. So I, I, I really can't spend much time on it because there's so many different positions. But the modern day historicist, for instance, says the white horse represents military victory. When God re removes the, the rider on the red horse and, and uh, in the red horse is the rise of communism and on and on and on it goes. Again, the problem with this is Jesus is going to give us the key to interpreting Revelation. So you got to stay with me. We're going to spend five or six sermons just in chapter six. And the key to understanding so that you can see so clearly is to see how Jesus understood Revelation ever before it was written. And he gives you the schematic for the events in the Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. So we'll come to that. Now here's a picture slide so you don't get lost in the weeds. All right, remember the rapture of the church is a little space of time there between the rapture and the start of the seven years. We don't know if it's weeks, days, or months, but it appears to be short because we saw in the opening of the book that the events are going to happen very quickly, very suddenly. So it appears to be a very short time. But this seven-year period, Revelation and Daniel alike and Jesus divides it into two halves, three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. So these four horsemen of the apocalypse, in fact, the first six seals all happen in the first half of the tribulation. Then an event will happen right dead center, as Jesus will point out. It's called the abomination of desolation when Antichrist claims to be God. And then the great tribulation period you begin to have great, great, great tribulation like you've never seen. Now, when we look at these first six seals, they're going to be chilling. But they won't even begin to compare with the trumpet and the bold judgments that are going to follow. So, now let me just say for a moment, there are a few people who are futurists who still literally interpret it 
but they take the first horse still to be the preaching of the gospel through Christ and his church. And so it's not a matter of how to interpret the scripture. Maybe it's more of a matter of how carefully to interpret the scripture. So I want you to see that these riders are very different. And so most who take a futuristic approach say this first rider is the Antichrist. Hold your finger here and go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. Let me read something to you over in the 19th chapter. Revelation chapter 19. It is describing the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's describing that time when Jesus will come again on a white horse. I I think Dr. Billy Graham was absolutely correct some 30 years ago when he wrote the book, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. He saw it as all being out in the future and that this rider was not indeed Jesus. Look Look at the description of Jesus, verse 11 of Revelation 19. There's no slides here. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, by the way, that's us, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now bring up the next chart. It begins to show the differences between these two riders. If you read the two passages and put them side by side, you discover that the rider in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2 has a bow, And the Lord Jesus, by the way, whom no one debates, is the rider in chapter 19, really the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. He has a sharp sword coming from his mouth. He is coming to conquer the enemies of God. Now, both are on a white horse, but the weapons are different. This man has a bow. And you'll see a lot of artwork on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The most carefully done ones show a bow only and no arrow. Some of them show a man with an arrow. He doesn't have any arrows. He has a bow only. Remember, the Bible teaches he is coming as a man of peace. And so while he has a bow in which to threaten people by with the threat of war, he is going to come as a man of peace. Basically, he says, look, I have a gun, but I don't need any bullets in it. He's a deceiver. And of course, the world is going to fall into the devil's trap. Paul, speaking of this time frame, said in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, while they are saying peace and safety, and that's what they are going to be saying at the start of the tribulation when this man comes to the forefront. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. What I'm wanting you to see as we go through this chart is there are a huge contrast between the two riders, and this rider in Revelation 6 is a deceiver, he's an imposter, he's not Christ, he's Antichrist. Now beyond the weapon, think about the crown of the white horse rider. Think about the crown that he has. Uh, Here on the chart, as you can see, not only are their weapons different, but their crowns are different. Verse 2 says, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And so here on the chart, you have a crown, and it's not the same kind of crown that Jesus has. Number one, it's singular. It's the Greek word stephanos. 
It was the crown that was given to the athlete, a, a, a laurel wreath that would go on his head that would wither and dry up. Whereas Jesus is not wearing a crown, a Stephanus. He is wearing, a, he's wearing diadems. Some of your translations say crowns, plural. Uh, the King James and the Net renders it that way. But the New American Standard and the ESV, they don't really interpret the word as they transliterate the word. The word is diadema, and it's in the plural because they want to underscore the literal importance that he is wearing a different kind of crown than the one that the Antichrist has. To listen again to today's message or any of the messages in our series on the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV14. Tomorrow, the conclusion of The White Horse of Deception. Join us then as we search the scriptures.